not endear religion to me at all. In geology, there is plenty of peer support for being non-religious. So when we moved in 1975 with our three young kids and cat to our house on the corner of Russell and Patwin, I made a point of being out near Patwin Road working with our big, noisy, Troy-built rototiller on Sunday mornings as people went back and forth to this church. Then Judy and I started to notice that many people going by were ones that we knew and respected. In particular, Cordell and Helen Durrell were well-established members of this church. Cord, as geology department chair, had hired me at UC Davis. Cord encouraged us, uh, encouraged us to give the church a try. We attended a few of the church's music programs, and eventually we started going to services. And the piano is actually uh, given in Helen's memory. We found the services interesting and thought-provoking, and we liked the people we met. So about 1980, we joined the church. Today, I'm just as firmly convinced of the fact of evolution and of the enormity of geologic time. However, I also now recognize a need to nurture the spiritual side of oneself. Many qualities or emotions, such as ethics, beauty, awe, wonder, intuition, and aesthetics are non-quantifiable, but subject to evaluation. They have been called spiritual qualities. I find these qualities or emotions very real. And I believe there's a spiritual side of life that is intrinsic to the human condition, even including scientists and non-religious people. Being a UU and aware of the UU principles helps me deal with these issues. This church has become my spiritual home, a place of friendship and celebration, and all three of our children were married in this sanctuary. Today, as citizens, we have unprecedented challenges before us. If life as we know it is to survive, we need to deal with the human-caused issues of climate change, peaking resources, overpopulation, and mass extinction of species. In the words of Thomas Berry, the human, quote, has become a predator draining life out of its host, unquote. Most established religions originated some two to three millennia ago in times of relative abundance and relatively low human numbers. They are not equipped to deal with times of scarcity, overpopulation, and resource stress that we are now entering. We need a religion that can deal with the perilous times that we face, can support our efforts to live in harmony with nature, and can inspire others. I believe that Unitarian Universalism, with its seven basic principles, its understanding that we are a part of the interdependent web of all existence, and its history of cutting-edge societal reform, is the religion urgently needed for these times. Ideally, it should become a dominant worldwide religion. For more information on the UU Church of Davis, please visit our website at www.uudavis.org.
The Davis High Journalism Program presents Local News from a Student Perspective. Welcome to this week's Dirt on Davis. For years, DHS's orchestra programs have been recognized for their abilities. The Symphony Orchestra is being praised for its work after the June issue of Downbeat Magazine came out this month and hit newsstands nationwide. Kelsey Ewing has the story. One of the final DHS events of the year is the annual card show, which took place on Wednesday, May 25th, and brought crowds of curious students to the high school quad. Ruby Siddiqui with co-producer Monica Lopez-Lara has the story. Thank you for tuning into this week's Dirt on Davis. This is Grace Calhoun signing out. Dr. Angelo Moreno and his orchestra will be recognized as the best classical high school group in the nation. Um, number one, they were really shocked uh, and really excited about it, and I think I'm really honored to have been recognized for all their hard work. First Chair Basis and DHS Senior Katie Ronning acknowledged that the competition is naturally fierce. There's a lot of really great orchestras out there too, and, uh, you know, we can always get better. However, the orchestra had a head start on many of the other applicants. The group meets four days a week, and members are required to play an additional 120 minutes outside of school every week. That, in comparison to most symphonies, um, is about twice as much time as most groups get in a week. Um, most college symphonies play two days, two nights a week. Most professional symphonies play three times before a concert. And so we get a lot, a lot of time to get it right. Not only has the symphony orchestra been praised for its work, but also, the DHS music program as a whole was recently recognized by the Grammy Signature Foundation. And that was kind of a big deal because that means that uh, as a department, we submit CDs and all the information about our music department as a whole. And we have to have excellence in every single group to be able to win that sort of award. The symphony orchestra, along with the Baroque Ensemble and Chamber Orchestra, will play in their final concert of the year on Thursday, May 26th. This has been Kelsey Ewing with BlueDevilHub.com. One of the final DHS events of the year is the annual car show, which took place on Wednesday, May 25th, and brought crowds of curious students to the high school quad. Rubia Siddiqui with co-producer Monica Lopez-Lara have the story. DHS's annual car show took place on Wednesday, May 25th. Although this year brought cloudy skies and rain to the quad, many students still gathered around the cars to bask in their glory. Senior and student government member Emma McNeil helped organize the event. She says the categories for nomination are Best Stereo, Best 4x4, People's Choice, Best Exterior, Best Interior, Best Wheels, and Best Classic. We started putting out applications three and a half weeks ago and we had to postpone the car show until a week later than what we were planning, which was May 25th instead of May 18th. Senior Clayton Jimenez entered his 1963 Cadillac DeVille. He says his favorite part of his car is a black and white leather interior, which he says was redone two years ago. He entered the DeVille into best interior, best classic, best exterior, and people's choice. I don't know. It's just, it's unique. It's one of its, it's like a old classic, it's like a luxury car, and it's like one of its only, it's one of the only kinds here, I guess, of that kind of car. Like, we have a bunch of classics, but all of them are like, more like muscle cars or something like that, and this is the only car that's like long and supposed to be luxurious. 
Junior Michael Yen also participated in what was his second car show by entering his Chevy Camaro in Best Exterior and People's Choice. Yen is not optimistic about winning because he has noticed that other cars have received more attention than his. No, I know. I'm not disappointed. Last year I was kind of disappointed, though, because... But last year they had way better cars than mine, I'm not going to lie. But this year I definitely thought I deserved to be, like, I don't know, top five cars. I, there was an awesome Mustang. There was, like, a Ferrari... And then there was just, like, some really stupid cars. Although he doesn't expect to win, he will not be disappointed because he participates to increase school spirit rather than to win a prize. Oh, I don't think I should win. I I mean, it would be nice to win. I don't I don't think that I have to win or anything. Um, I just, I just uh, want to be part of, like, the school spirit thing, you know? According to McNeil, the cars that received the most attention were the Ferrari Cadillac and a truck with an impressive sound system. This is Rabia Siddiqui, BlueDevilHub.com. Thank you for tuning into this week's Dirt on Davis. This is Grace Calhoun signing out. This podcast is a production of KCRW Public Radio in Santa Monica, California. Before we start the program, we want to take a second to tell you about something really exciting happening at KCRW. It's our summer membership drive. As you may or may not know, KCRW's programs and our podcasts are supported by those of you who listen. It's your voluntary contributions that allow KCRW to produce this kind of thought-provoking, intelligent, and outspoken programming. If you enjoy and get something out of listening to this podcast, think about investing in KCRW and the value of non-commercial media. Donating is really easy and takes only a moment. All you have to do is call 800-600-KCRW or make your donation online at kcrw.com. Oh, and you could even win a trip to Barcelona or Costa Rica. So thank you very much, and now on to the program. Here it is! From deep inside your radio. Ladies and gentlemen, sometime this week, um, I crossed a line. A, a, a line which one could have seen coming in the distance, or one approaching the line, actually, could have seen it, seeming to get nearer when one was... The, you know what I mean. Anyway, it's a, uh, a, a line that defines a new era in the digital wonderland. Uh, I've been staying in a, a uh, rented house here in Edinburgh, Scotland. Think of it. Uh, and um, it's, it's one of several rented houses I've had occasion to, to stay in over the past year or so. As, you know, you just, you just get so peripatetic, you have to lay your, lay your weary frame down every once in a while. And I've noticed... As I've I've been in these rented houses, lovely dwellings all. That the once simple task, ladies and gentlemen, of turning on a television set, has now become fraught. You know, it was a big technological innovation in the 1970s when Sony swept the American TV marketplace with a little thing called Instant On. You no longer had to wait for your TV to warm up before you could get the, the jolt of video satisfaction. It was instant on. How could we ever turn our back on that? We have. And so much more. So I, I'm in this 
branded house in Edinburgh. Lovely dwelling, as I say. And um, pick up the two remotes, two of the three. One is clearly for the DVD, but then there's, then there's a set-top box and a TV. Each, of course, has their own remote. And um, my wife and I are trying to figure out, you know, how to watch some TV. I know. We should be ashamed of our... There we were. Couldn't help it. And there's a list, a, a sheet of instructions, you see. This is, this is new. I don't think when you went into a rented house 20 years ago, you needed a sheet of instructions to tell you how to turn on the TV. But there, there it is, and we, we tried, you know, we tried following the sheet of instructions. Long story short, many, 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 many clicks of many, many buttons on both remotes finally get to a point where we can watch a little, a little, a sprinkling of a selection of channels. Because something, the box is not working. And uh, so I can only see, and then, and those channels now start. And then I walk over to my laptop and utilizing a, uh, a website that a friend had introduced me to just last week, as if setting up setting me up for this this rant. I did four clicks on the laptop and was watching any one of hundreds of channels live on British television. Which is to say, ladies and gentlemen, the line we've crossed is it's now easier to watch TV on your computer then on your TV. Hello, welcome to the show. From right near the castle in Edinburgh, Scotland, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. Ladies and gentlemen, the new F-bomb foreclosure GMAC is one of the nation's largest mortgage servicers. It wanted to foreclose on a New York City homeowner last year, but lacked the crucial paperwork necessary to seize the property. GMAC uh, normally has a solution, which is to create and sign documents in the name of companies that made the original loans, have its employees do that. But this was trickier because the lender... AmeriQuest had gone out of business in 2007. So GMEC, which was bailed out by taxpayers three years ago, looked for a way to craft a document that would pass legal muster. Do we not have signing authority? Are there any other options? Says the head of GMEC's document execution team. Well, GMAC now had an answer three months later. It filed a document with New York authorities said that said the delinquent AmeriQuest loan had been assigned to it effective of August 2005. The document was dated July 7, 2010, three years after AmeriQuest ceased to exist. An examination by the ProPublica website suggests this transaction was not unique. Thousands of similar assignment documents filed in New York in the name of AmeriQuest after 2008 by GMAC and other services. But if that doesn't stink enough for you, MERS, remember MERS, the electronic registry of mortgage uh, documents and assignments that the financial industry set up to avoid registering 
mortgage sales with local and county officials. Well, in rule changes announced late July, the company now forbids members to file any more foreclosure actions in MERS's name, and it requires mortgage servicers to obtain mortgage assignments and record them with county clerks before beginning foreclosures. That is to say, they're going legal. The new F-bomb, ladies and gentlemen, and there is no shelter. And now, it's time for me to read the trades for you. As if this program weren't informative enough. This is from Adweek. Talking vagina ads aren't racist, says ad agency. Oh, yes, I'll read it for you. Bank, take that to the bank. Oh, sorry, the bank's closed. Summer's Eve released three videos recently featuring talking hand puppet vaginas as part of its new Hail to the V campaign. It's meant to be about empowering women and rejuvenating the brand. That's uh, following last year's disastrous print ad which told women to douche before asking for a raise. I'm reading this. These three new ads have created new controversy with some saying the voice work in the African-American and Latina versions promotes racial stereotypes. The black woman is Pam Greer and Lil' Kim all wrapped in one, writes one critic, while the Latina woman vagina opens with the cry, ay ay ay. The larger problem for Summer's Eve, writes Adweek, is that many women see douching products themselves and any marketing of them as anti-woman, i.e. creating a feeling of shame around the issue of cleanliness, then selling the antidote to the shame. Casting the process as female empowerment is particularly galling. For its part, the Richards Group is defending the ad. Agency founder Stan Richards says to Adweek, We have a wonderful client that recognizes no matter what they do, marketing in the feminine hygiene category is going to provoke a reaction. After listening to thousands of women say they want straight talk and lighthearted communication on a historically uncomfortable topic, Summer's Eve gave us license to be bold, irreverent, and celebratory across a multitude of mediums I'm quoting, and to different audiences. We are surprised that some have found the online videos racially stereotypical. We never intended anything other than to make the videos relatable. And our in-house multicultural experts confirm the approach. The more important mission is to get women talking about taboo topics, and we hope these negative sentiments don't overshadow that effort, unquote Stan Richards from the agency. I think the more important mission is to sell Summer's Eve, Stan. Check your contract. The talking vagina ads are not racist, ladies and gentlemen. You heard it here last. As always, when I read the trades for you, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. This is the show, and it's, it's not tax season, but on the other hand, it's always tax season. And uh, I, I can imagine that, that that has several people reaching for their uh, their dials. But don't do that. Um, a gentleman who uh, has been making taxes and, and 
the games played with them uh, comprehensible to mortals like me uh, for many years, uh, going back to his days uh, as the tax writer. He didn't write the tax law. He wrote about it for the New York Times, is now uh, uh, unveiled as a columnist for Reuters. And uh, uh, I, I wanted to catch up with him because uh, he's an expert on something that's, that's been catching my eye more and more. Uh, David K. Johnston, uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me on. My pleasure. And um, the the subject that I wanted to tackle with you, and it's it's a, it's it's complex, but you you're good at making the complex comprehensible. Is this whole idea of offshoring, uh, which you've written about? Um, can you I- explain in, um, <laughs> in in less than half an hour what uh, offshoring is? It's actually quite simple conceptually. Um, what you do if you're a business is you take your expenses here in the United States and then you arrange to collect your profits in a place like the Cayman Islands, Panama, Bermuda, where you will not be taxed on them. A simple example of that is the Viagra tablet. Uh, They sell for about $18 each now, and there's a huge profit in that. Well, when the researchers at Pfizer were working on what became Viagra, uh, it was intended to be a heart drug, uh, cardiovascular drug, and some of the male researchers noticed an unusual property, uh, the Pfizer Corporation immediately packaged up the information it had at the time, which wasn't worth very much because it was still experimental, and Pfizer America sold it to Pfizer Switzerland, which in turn licensed it to Pfizer Liechtenstein. (laughs) And every time uh, somebody buys one of these $18 tablets now, the cost of manufacturing them is a tax deduction in the United States, and the royalty paid on it for the ownership of the intellectual property is tax-free collected by Pfizer in its Liechtenstein pocket. The result is... They pay very little tax. They build up all this money offshore, and you and I have a heavier tax burden. I've, I've grasped that sort of basic scenario. But then does that money forever live in Liechtenstein? Well, uh, seven years ago, Congress passed something called the American Jobs Creation Act. Well, what could be wrong with that? You're right. With a name like that, how yeah. could you not be in favor of it, Right. right? And right now, there is a proposed new American Jobs Creation Act. And it said if you have offshore profits, you may repatriate them to the United States. And instead of paying the 35% corporate tax, you only have to pay five and a quarter percent. The biggest beneficiary of this law back then was Pfizer. And Pfizer saved $11 billion in taxes. And what happened the day after they repatriated this money for very little tax? They started firing people. And they kept firing people until they fired 40,000 people. Uh, I'm not sure that they're through firing people at Pfizer. Um, Now, not all companies did this, but they got one-third of the benefits. And it was clearly an American jobs destruction program. So the new bill, uh, like the old one, actually doesn't require you to create jobs, despite its title. Uh, You can do all sorts of things with the money. You can use it to finance buybacks of your company stock 
And executives, of course, like that because if there's less stock out there and the company's buying it, it tends to push up the price of the stock, and that means their stock options are worth more money, all thanks to the generosity of you and I as taxpayers. Now, uh, about a year ago, there was a, a piece, I think, in the Washington Post that went into uh, some detail on this, and I, I, I gather this is related to what we're talking about, uh, the double Irish with a Dutch sandwich. <laughs> there's a, a Harry, there's a, an enormous number of devices out there. I wrote about ones many years ago. Uh, Peter Wariski at the Washington Post wrote about some of these. Uh, but there's a couple of simple basic concepts. You take advantage of tax treaties. So you uh, uh, give you one example. Uh, an American corporation, uh, I hope I can remember the name of it, that I wrote about years ago, legally moved its headquarters to Bermuda. All they did was rent a mailbox in Bermuda, and they pay the Bermuda government $26,000 a year for the privilege of, on paper, being a Bermuda company. Nobody works there. They have a mailbox. And they pay some local lawyers very nicely. Uh, in order to get money to Bermuda, they take advantage of a tax treaty in Barbados, another British island down in the Caribbean. And lo and behold, to take advantage of that tax treaty once a year, the directors of the company must fly to Barbados and hold a meeting. On the poor things. And as we all know, that's one of the worst possible places in the world to want to go, yeah. say, in the middle of January when your company's headquartered in the Northeast. Yeah. And they pay effectively a 1% tax on their profits. Wow. Um, but now this double Irish with a Dutch sandwich. Uh, Google and a lot of companies who are uh, yes. heavy with intellectual property uh, were uh, domiciling their IP uh, uh, property in Ireland and then somehow moving it, paying a, a, an affiliate in the Netherlands, and then it went back to Ireland, and then it ended up in, in one of the Caribbean islands. Was that sort of the Correct. And, and the Dutch and Dutch banks and German banks like Deutsche Bank and Swiss banks are all very big players in this. Here, Harry, here's the fundamental difference between now and when you and I were little children in terms of taxing businesses. Uh, when you and I were born, uh, America was a, a country of big manufacturing enterprises. There were automobile factories and television factories and uh, in Southern California, where you and I grew up, uh, big, huge uh, uh, agricultural uh, organizations that uh, had oranges and uh, whatnot. And aerospace factories. And aeros Oh, yes, aerospace. L.A. was for forever and maybe still is the real center of the American war business. Yeah. And when a company has a big factory... You can tax that company. It can't get up and move. That's when we made things like that. But today in America, what we principally manufacture are numbers. That's what a software is. It's an algorithm. It's a series of numbers. Uh, uh, CDs, uh, uh, all sorts of things are numbers. The other thing we manufacture are molecules. That's what the drugs we get are. Well, the ownership of those things, and in the case of the numbers, the the representation of them, you can move outside of the U.S. with the push of a button. And so our tax system still operates as if we lived in a national industrial wage economy when we now live in a global digital services world. And we need to have a fundamental reform of our tax system. Uh. You mean like the the kinds of meetings that we've been watching in in recent weeks between uh, 
Democrats and Republicans to uh, craft a uh, fundamental reform of our tax system? First of all, there's no way to fundamentally reform the tax system the way they're doing that. It's an enormous project that will take the number of years to work out. Mm -hmm. That's a game of chicken. Well, chicken's got to eat, too. Uh, We'll be back with more of our interview with David K. Johnston moments from now here on the show. But first, news of the Olympic movement. Produced by James Ebersall, Jr., I think many of you have seen by now the um, the jocular re-rendering of the Olympic logo in light of this week's events in London. But this is true from the Telegraph in London. A London 2012 Olympics ambassador who has met London Mayor Boris Johnson and Lords Sebastian Coe, head of the Olympic Committee, has been revealed to be a riot suspect after she was reported to the police by her own mother. 18-year-old Chelsea Ives allegedly threw bricks at a police car during the violence in Enfield this week. She even boasted she'd had, quote, the best day ever, unquote, according to uh, what was testified to in magistrate's court in Westminster. The teenager was caught after her mother, Adrienne, saw her on a television news report and called the police. Mrs. Ives said her decision was gut-wrenching, but insisted she only did what any honest parent could. I could not believe we saw our daughter among the crowds for a minute. We did not know what to do. But then what could normal, honest parents do? How could you sit there and say that, see that, and say, that's okay? As parents, we had to say, she can't get away with that. Uh, Unquote. Ives has met the mayor of London as well as the London Olympics chief, Sebastian Coe, as part of her role as a 2012 ambassador appearing at Westminster Magistrate's court during an all-night session. She denied two counts of burglary, violent disorder, and attacking a police car in the early hours. She was, in 2009, invited into the House of Commons to celebrate the success of a football project run by a, a community sport program. But the prosecutor now said she led, she, Ives, led the attack on a cell phone store. Quote, she was the first to pick up masonry and hurl it at the window. She was also involved in a mob attack on another phone store. She also allegedly hurled masonry at a marked police BMW. The police drive BMWs in London, no wonder, in a, quote, frenzied attack that forced officers to flee in their Mercedes, I hope. She was refused bail until August 17th. She was described by her lawyer as a talented sportswoman. But more character building from the Olympics right here. The uh, survivors of the Bhopal gas tragedy in India, as well as those who support their cause worldwide, are protesting Dow Chemical's sponsorship of the 2012 London Olympics. They've threatened to hold a parallel Olympics of those rendered disabled due to toxins from Dow's factories. If the managing committee of the London Olympics does not reconsider its decision, the non-governmental organizations fighting the 1984 Union Carbide disaster case, along with the counterparts of other parts of the world, say they will hold that parallel Olympics. More than 25,000 people were killed. Over 5 million have been affected from the leak of poisonous gas from that factory in December of 1984. 
By sponsoring London Olympics, Dow Chemicals wants to show the human its human face to the world, but the entire world knows its devil face already, says a leading activist fighting for the Bhopal gas survivors. It's the Olympics, ladies and gentlemen. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. Wow, I feel like my character's been built just just saying those things. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what's up with the Army Corps of Engineers? Well, after years of fighting the government, Bunnatine Bunny Greenhouse, a whistleblower who was demoted after exposing problems with a sole source contract related to the invasion of Iraq, has won an almost $1 million settlement. That's uh, the decision of a U.S. District Court in Washington. Uh, This was lost wages... Don't do the joke. Compensatory damages and attorney fees. Beyond the particulars of her situation, Greenhouse says her case makes it loud and clear that federal employees need better laws to protect them if they engage in whistleblowing. Greenhouse was a high-profile government whistleblower inside the Army Corps of Engineers. It involved a Halliburton subsidiary. Oh, now the liberals are taking listen. Kellogg, Brown, and Root. The Pentagon did not respond for a request for comment. Greenhouse was the civilian procurement executive for the Corps. She objected to KBR using its own cost projections for a multi-year, no-bid, no-competition contract. She initially objected within the Corps, later spoke to Congress about the contract. After she complained to Congress, she was kicked out of the senior executive service and stripped of her top-secret clearance. Legislation that would enhance current whistleblowing protections has been considered by Congress for years without ever gaining final approval. That's because Congress doesn't need it. They, they got their own protection. If the whistleblowers could vote on Congress's protection, then see, now you have a thing. Greenhouse has been a strong advocate for greater protections. And the president of the National Whistleblower Center called her an American hero. But more about the Corps. Yeah. Army Corps of Engineers spent how much time, do you think, discussing whether designs for pump stations and three New Orleans canals could withstand storm surge pressure? How long do you think the officials spent considering whether those designs were up to the job? Less time than the jury took to acquit O.J. Simpson. Specifically, less than five minutes. Even though that um, element was a key aspect of the project, needed to prevent another flood of New Orleans, like the one that the Corps caused in 2005. For complete information, see the big uneasy. Instead of evaluating the proposal on their own, officials trusted claims by the contractor which won the contract for the project that the pump's foundations would hold up. Claims that were disputed by another firm that was competing for the contract. The lack of a proper evaluation of a critical aspect of the proposal to build so-called permanent pump stations for the three canals is just one of several technical and procedural problems detailed in the findings of the Government Accountability Office requiring the Corps to reevaluate the bids for the three-quarters of a billion-dollar project. The decision also chronicles the Corps' failure to properly compensate for the advantage the winning bidder gained by hiring a former Corps official who helped design the bid. And it raised questions about whether any design for the London Avenue pump, one of the three pumps in question, will perform up to the agency's specifications says the GAO's Managing Associate General Counsel for Procurement Law. At the end of the day, there are some disturbing findings in this decision. 
the GAO found the Corps barely evaluated major technical issues like the depth of the piles used in the project. Oh, that wasn't a problem before. No problem. The manner they connected to the rest of the structure and other issues. The Corps barely evaluated such issues based largely on testimony from the head of the committee that reviewed the technical aspects of the bids. That official was not named in the GAO's decision, noted if the design did not meet the requirements, quote, New Orleans could be inundated with water as it was during Hurricane Katrina, unquote. But the official said he didn't think about whether the bidder, the successful bidder's proposal was adequate until he learned it was being challenged. When I asked how long the committee discussed that aspect of the project, he replied, I don't remember it being very long. It was more, does it look reasonable? When a GAO official asked if the discussion took five minutes, the core official replied, maybe, and I'm not even sure it was that long. The core official defended that lack of evaluation by saying the core would review the specifics of the plan later in the process. You know, like after it's too late? No, after the contract is awarded. He said that such an approach was common when a single con- contractor is responsible. Though decision by GAO noted that the Corps' own criteria required that it actually evaluate the design. It's your Corps of Engineers, ladies and gentlemen. Unfortunately, it's mine, too. And now... I thought I'd never live to see this. Addy, the Adam, are you are you wearing a kilt? Well, that's what it feels like. All right. What's anything underneath? Yeah, proton. Okay. That's what I thought. Ladies and gentlemen, the Energy Department handing out research grants in all kinds of energy fields that are low in carbon dioxide emissions announces this week it'll give $39 million to universities around the country to try to solve various <laughs> nuclear problems. I didn't think we had any. Two researchers at Clemson will get a million dollars to study the behavior of particles of nuclear waste when buried in clay in metal canisters that have rusted. That couldn't happen. One open question is how high a temperature, which would be generated by the waste itself, affects the interactions. These are important to understand how the waste would spread over time. The goal is to, quote, reduce uncertainty, unquote, about the life expectancy of atomic particles. Huh. I'm not an... Oh, you're uncertain? Really? Okay, then. With the cancellation of the Yucca Mountain waste dump, many nuclear operators are loading older fuel into sealed metal casks filled with inert gas. MIT will get a grant to study how such dry casks perform in salt environments. Storage casks are stored mostly in coastal or lakeside regions where a salt air environment exists. Cracking related to corrosion could occur in 30 years or less... And the NRC is studying whether the casks can be used for 100 years, as some hope. And another important concern in the nuclear power field is the aging of reactors. Researchers at Penn State will get almost half a million to plan a system that will use ultrasonic waves to look for cracks and other defects in hot metal parts. Mm. 
I, I got excited for a minute. I'm sorry. Re- reported levels of radioactive contamination in Japanese beef are above international safety guidelines, but not enough to pose a significant health threat to people eating the beef, according to UK experts who've been working with colleagues in Japan. Is it a threat to people watching the people eating the beef? No, I would not see it as a significant public health risk, says Jim Smith, a radio ecologist at the University of Portsmouth. If you eat a kilogram of meat with that level of contamination, you are not going to be significantly at risk, unless you know how much a kilogram is. No, he didn't say that. Because of the difficulty of monitoring over such a wide area, I'm surprised we have not seen more incidents like this. I expect that something like this will happen again. Today, 25 years after Chernobyl, some parts of northern Europe still have levels of cesium-137 high enough to justify restrictions on moving and selling livestock. I would not be surprised if there were control on foodstuffs in Japan for many years to come, says one of the visiting experts. Tea has so far been the most affected vegetable in areas well away from Fuk. That is mystifying us all at the moment, says one of the visiting experts from England. Get a grant, babe. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission is undertaking a study to ensure that spent fuel pools at Peach Bottom Atomic Power Station can maintain safety guidelines despite the degradation of a material used to control the waste. At issue is Boraflex, which based on the name, I'd guess, contains boron. So why don't they just use Boraxo? I don't know. The spent fuel is still highly radioactive when it's placed in the cooling pool. The temperature of the waste drops dramatically within a few months. Conditions must be controlled to make sure it doesn't start fission. To this end, Boraflex plant panels are installed. But gamma rays, the strongest form of radiation, have caused shrinkage in the Boraflex. So NRC inspectors will examine whether the existing material is safe for use until 2014 when the owner of the plant, Exelon, plans to replace it. Failure of the system could cause boiling of water in the fuel, sorry, in the fuel pool, or the release of radioactivity. There are 19 reactors nationwide that use Boraflex and problems have also been noted at other facilities. So, no, it's fine. Don't you worry about a thing. Exelon has known since 1996 that there was degradation to the material. That's 10 years after the material was approved for Peach Bottom. It's been in there since the mid-80s and had not held up the way they envisioned says a spokesperson for the NRC. Yeah, it's that vision thing. That'll get you. And Florida utility regulators are considering an expansion of nuclear power in the state and how much of the bill will be shouldered by ratepayers. Really? But it's cheap. The Florida Public Service Commission this week began considering proposals from Florida Power and Light that would allow them to pass on about $365 million in nuclear energy-related costs to customers Florida Power and Light is asking for about a, almost $200 million next year to help upgrade nuclear plants and to move forward on a plan to build two new reactors at Turkey Point. I didn't choose the name. Why are you looking at me? I'm not looking at you. I wasn't talking to you. That would amount to about $2 a month for 1,000 kilowatt hours of residential electri- electricity use, up from the $0.33 cents a month authorized just last year. But it's cheap because it's safe. Florida Power and Light estimates the total cost of the improvements in new reactors will be between 13 and $19 billion. I got that on me. And they say regulators must consider whether the possibility of another U.S. recession and the fallout from Fook might make the price tag even more expensive for projects that may never be built. Oh, come on now. Addy? I'd build them. Yeah, but you're wearing a kilt.
Clean, cheap, too safe to meter. Our friend, the Adam. Now let's return to our conversation with tax expert David K. Johnston. Let's get back to offshoring. If the repatriation bills didn't pass, and I, I, I'm not enough of a naive to think they won't pass this time as well as the, they did last time, but if, a, 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 if, if the companies can't repatriate their profits from you know, poor old Bermuda or, or uh, Cayman Islands, are they able to assert uh, operational use of the money even though it's never been repatriated into the United States? It's a little complicated. Um, if you have $100 billion in your offshore account, you can't go to your bankers in America and say, loan us $100 billion here and we'll pledge that as collateral. That's what you do when you buy your house, right? Mm-hmm. Let me mm-hmm. live in this house and I'll pledge the house as collateral through a mortgage. But when you go to your banker and you say, look, we need to borrow some money. And um, by the way, you know perfectly well we have $100 billion sitting over there in this tax haven. And we need to borrow $50 billion to do X or Y. Uh, you can get the loan on pretty good terms. So they certainly have access to this money. Well, let me let me just pursue that for a second. If, it, if it's so simple to just rent a, a, a mailbox and, and have a subsidiary in Bermuda, if you had the telephone number or the email address of a Bermudan lawyer, why couldn't, you know, uh, Jim's Drugstore do that? Well, because uh, in order to do that, you've got to have, first of all, enough scale to afford the costs of it. Many of the tax shelter devices that I've exposed over the years, and they literally have totaled many hundreds of billions of dollars on a 10-year basis. In theory, you and I could go do, but to do it, you really have to have a huge amount of money. I mean, some of them come with, for example, a million-dollar upfront fee just for an opinion letter from a lawyer that will keep you from going to prison (laughs) If the government finds out about it, that's an expensive get out of jail free card. In other words, that's right. yeah. exactly. So the the table stakes are high, is what you're saying? Absolutely. This is not the two dollar uh, table <laughs> at uh, uh, Binion's in Vegas. This is the uh, five thousand dollar or fifty thousand dollar private room at uh, Wynn. Yeah, this is the baccarat table upstairs at Wynn. Yes. Um, so. Do, do companies get any other benefits from this offshore apparatus that, that extends around the world other than tax benefits? Is, that, is it just basically uh, done for tax dodging? Yeah, it's ba- it is basically a tax benefit. And the real problem these companies face, Harry, is this. They can't use that money to buy back their stock. And that's what they want to do. One of the, the big stories in America that's very important to understand Uh, about why your investments are what they are and what's happening to wealth and income is that many, many companies are using most of their profits to buy back their stock, and then they issue to executives an amount of stock equal to what they bought back. And it's a way to pump up executive pay, and it damages all the rest of the investors over a long period of time. And in in the case of Pfizer, where they spent their tax savings and their repatriated money Uh, almost exclusively to buy back their stock, it didn't work. The price of Pfizer has continued to fall, and I think now it's about half what it was uh, when that uh, Jobs Creation Act that I call the Jobs Destruction Act was passed seven years ago. You're saying Pfizer needs Viagra for its stock price. It's exactly. It's very good. I wish I'd thought of that, Harry. That's why you're a comedian, Um, and I'm an investigative reporter. Uh, They need Viagra for their stock. But do they get do they get any kind of regulatory benefit from from uh, offshoring? Not really. I mean, the, 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 one of the challenges I think we face is that corporations, 
in the modern world have become so incredibly complex. What you see as the New York Times or CBS or uh, General Motors, a company with that brand name, in fact, internally is uh, hundreds and in some cases thousands of separate little companies. Uh, every corporate jet is its own corporation, <laughs> and all of this with its is own board of limit- with its own board of directors. That's <laughs> well, technically, yes. Yeah, uh, that they're internal executives, and and uh, uh, so these structures are, which are all designed to limit liability and limit taxes, and exp- and, and are a, a full employment program for corporate lawyers. Um, regulators, really, I believe. You can't expect government-grade regulators to truly understand these things. And the IRS actually admitted, I don't know, in response to some story I wrote when I was at the New York Times, that that Enron was so complicated, just that company, Enron, that they really didn't understand what was going on inside Enron. Well, that's the same thing we heard in, in, during the financial crisis, that regulators uh, just couldn't keep up with the complexity of derivatives and of CDOs and CDSs and the pyramid of debt that was being built. Isn't that Sort of exactly, and the few people who did get it, like Berksley Bourne, of course, were immediately slapped down by politicians uh, and told, you know, stay out of this. This isn't your business. When in fact, that's exactly the point of regulation. Yeah. So it is. A, it is a jobs creation act for uh, corporate lawyers. Oh uh, yes. Uh, uh, in fact, all of the tax law changes we're making. You know, we've, for the last thirty years, we've had this incredible, growing remake of the tax code every year. Uh, you may only hear about a few stories in the news. There are thousands of changes being made in the tax law, uh, often to benefit one individual or a handful or a small industry or to gain an advantage for one industry against another. And many of them, uh, they don't have a label on them. If you read the thing, you would never know what it means uh, unless somebody tips you, tips somebody like me off to what it is and shows you how to walk through it. And so that's why we have this just terrible indefensible mess of a tax code. And whom did you anger when you were in school that you inherited the job of reading all this stuff and trying to figure it out? (laughs) I actually asked for this, Harry. I was, uh, uh, you know, 30 years ago, I was the guy at the L.A. Times who remade the reputation of the LAPD and revealed the worldwide spying they were doing and the, the brutality and the failure to solve a lot of crimes. And Um, But I started to become interested in wealthy people and taxes because of two scandals in California. One of them was the Hiltons. Conrad Hilton left his fortune to the starving children of the earth, and I exposed how his son Barron arranged to divert the money to himself, and he ultimately got about two-thirds of it. And then the Keck brothers, as in the Keck telescope, uh, made this deal with then-candidate for Governor Duke Majan, who was attorney general, and who was supposed to be the guardian of charitable trusts, to get a million dollars a year in what I called anti-pauper insurance, anti-poverty insurance, from their father's charitable fund. Mm. And that's when my eyes sort of opened up to, you know, there's more to this tax system than what you what I'd been hearing. Then more of the tax system than Form 1040. And, and yeah, and what yeah. comes out of your paycheck. And yeah. I began to realize that, you know, there are people who are getting rich off this. And what is it? It's taken me 20 years. And I, I assure you, there's no small number of detractors out there who will tell you I have no idea what I'm doing. But you do have a Pulitzer Prize to show for it, right? I do. And, and I also have an unusual distinction. I am not a lawyer. In fact, I'm not a college graduate, though I have a college education, including graduate school. 
but I am a professor of law and a <laughs> professor of graduate accounting at Syracuse University. Wow. Without ever having graduated from college. Yeah. I have a college education. Yeah, no, I understand. The University of Chicago Graduate School, but yeah. never got a diploma because I never stayed in one college long enough. You and Sarah Palin. Yep. <laughs> not somebody I particularly identify you with. Not, you're not usually lumped in with her, but there you go. Uh, David, uh, anything more we need to know about this this uh, offshoring uh, that I haven't been smart enough to ask you about uh, in terms of how it works or whom, whom it benefits and whom it hurts? Well, here's the other thing I think people should think about about offshoring. The techniques that are used by wealthy Americans and large corporations uh, offshore are the very same techniques that not nice people um, who want to uh, blow people up and kill people and t undertake revolutions and people who are in the drug business, as with the incredible explosion, epidemic of murder and violence we're seeing right across the border in Mexico, they use the same techniques. So we should be thinking about international flows of money in terms not just of tax and tax avoidance and tax evasion, but in terms of stability, uh, in terms of avoiding war and death and conflict and having a regulatory regime that serves the interests of stability, democracy, and the liberties of the people. Thank you so much. Uh, I've, I've read you for years, and you've... you've uh done the impossible, which is make me understand this stuff, and I, I, I wanted to share that gift with the audience today, and it's really a treat to talk to you. Well, thank you, Harry, very much for having me on. Appreciate it. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Apologies of the Week. So sorry. Oh, let's start with a caddy, shall we? How about super caddy Steve Williams? He took to his website to issue a statement about his comments Sunday after the bridge, last Sunday after the Bridgestone Invitational. He was criticized for talking about himself and not the golfer he was working for who won. When interviewed by CBS, quote, there's been considerable debate following the comments I made at the conclusion of Sunday's Bridgestone Invitational. It was a complete surprise to have the CBS announcer ask for an interview. My emotions following Adam's victory were running very high, and at the time I felt my emotions poured out and got the better of me. I apologize to my fellow caddies and professionals for failing to mention Adam's outstanding performance. I would like to thank all of those fans at Firestone who made this victory the most special of my career. See, he didn't mention Adam again. And he didn't mention Bridgestone. University of Kansas basketball player Thomas Robinson is sorry. The junior forward has apologized for spitting on a bouncer during an altercation at the Cave nightclub in Lawrence, Kansas. They have nightclubs in Kansas. The Lawrence Journal World reported, though the bouncer didn't want to press charges, Robinson completed 20 hours of community service and then wrote the letter of apology. Quote, I hope you can forgive me for this serious lapse of judgment, he wrote. I'm very embarrassed about my behavior that night. I now realize you have a difficult job, and I'm sorry for making it tougher that evening. Robinson was cited for misdemeanor battery, which I believe is a double-A offense. Hernandario Gomez, the coach of the Colombian national soccer team, apologized for punching a woman who insulted him by criticizing his job performance. Witnesses said Gomez struck the woman twice at the entrance to a bar on Saturday night. See, it's the bars. 
This act shanks me in front of my mother, my wife, and each and every one of the women in my country and in my family, Gomez says. He realizes he was wrong for punching the woman. He, being a soccer coach, he should have kicked her. English celebrity magazine Grazia has admitted to altering a cover photo of Kate Middleton to make her skinnier. The March, sorry, May 9th special royal wedding issue featured a doctored photo of the Duchess, or a Duchess photo of the doctor, in her Alexander McQueen wedding gown, in which Middleton appeared to have an extremely narrow waist. The magazine apologized for the incident, which had already sparked a debate over the magazine's practices. Last week, L'Oreal was forced to remove two ads from magazines after it was revealed the photo images had been altered. The ads, both for anti-aging creams, featured actress Julia Roberts and supermodel Christy Turlington and were deemed misleading. If you can be a supermodel, you can be a super caddy. That's all I think. No, that's not all I think. More than a month after he was accidentally shot during an Old West gunfight reenactment, Pittsburgh resident John Ellis says he's been contacted by only one person affiliated with the show, the shooter. The optometrist remains off the job after being shot June 17th in the forearm and elbow while on his vacation with his family in Hill City, South Dakota, in the Black Hills National Forest. He was about among a hundred spectators as actors began a final battle with five or six guns which were supposed to be filled with blanks. Somehow the gun used by one reenactor had live rounds. He fired four bullets into the crowd, wounding Ellis and two others. Ellis says he got a conversation with the shooter. He said he never intended to do anything like that and apologized and he is the only one that has contacted me so far. No one else from the city or Wild West organization or Chamber of Commerce has contacted me. The arrest in Belarus last week on suspicion of tax evasion of an activist, human rights activist, drew international condemnation. It's emerged since then that members of the European Union helped the case against him by providing the authorities in Minsk with his banking information, or his banksking information. Lithuania has already apologized to his family. Uh, Mr. Bialyatsky, who heads one of the most prominent human rights groups in Belarus. Now, Poland, who has been a staunch defender of opposition groups in Belarus, has admitted it also divulged information about bank accounts in his name. Polish Foreign Minister Radosław Sikorski has apologized for the leak. I'm so sorry on behalf of the Republic, he wrote on Twitter, calling the disclosure a reprehensible mistake and vowing to redouble efforts to support democracy in Belarus. Camille Grammer has apologized to ex-husband Kelsey Grammer for insulting the size of his penis. According to gossip website TMZ, she had made a remark, big hands, big feet, big disappointment. Her official apology was issued via the same website. Some joking remarks I made got picked up and caused my ex-husband great embarrassment, and for that, I sincerely apologize. For more than a decade, federal prosecutors say Mark Chevarella perpetrated a profound evil upon juveniles in Lucerne County, that's where Scranton, Pennsylvania is, unjustly incarcerating them as part of a scheme to enrich himself. This week, he found himself on the receiving end of a 28-year prison sentence that will assure he probably will spend most of his rest of his life in prison and also ordered to pay nearly $1.2 million in restitution. I said restitution. Addressing the court, Chavarella acknowledged he illegally accepted money from a builder of juvenile detention centers. He denied he ever jailed a juvenile in exchange for cash. I blame no one but myself for what has happened. I had the opportunity to say no to taking money I believed was legal to receive, but I knew that I should not take because it was wrong and unethical for me to do so. He apologized to his family, citizens of the county, his former colleagues on the bench, 
and probation department employees. He also apologized to juveniles who appeared before him, saying he hoped they could forgive him, quote, for being a hypocrite by not 